Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. It's a big deal to me to have today's guest on the show. Uh, Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam is where you know him from mostly. Uh, he has just also uh, composed the score for Under the Banner of Heaven. His last solo album, uh, I, should, what is, I Should Probably Be Outside, <laughs> uh, came yeah. out a year and about a year ago. And it's great and so different than a lot of the other stuff you made. I mean, I, I want to talk about it a little bit. But I loved oh. it. I love that record. Um, awesome. And uh, first of all, man, thank you so much for... Uh, I know that it was like largely because of you in the beginning that we got to use so much Pearl Jam music in Super Pumped and that you'd been watching Billions. And I think it's why we got to use Wishlist in Billions. So... Thank you for that. It meant so much to us when we got to use Wishlist. We'd wanted to use it for years. And then to get to use your music throughout Super Pumped, you know, it really made the show for us. Yeah, I, th- I think we we sort of had a reputation early on for being the band that didn't want our music in anything. Um, and as time went on, we started using, we started putting music in things. But I, I was never that stoked on stuff that came across the table to us you know so um uh i was so happy when greer you know because that, that was part of what we threw at greer we're like hey get us some good stuff like get us some cool shows and cool you know and he was like like what you know and bill and billions was one of the things that i'd been watching so um so much of that is yeah. just is greer making it happen yeah so, no nah, he's awesome scott scott's great but yeah it was uh it was a great and and uh and Samino too Samino had and i are friendly and so he had yeah. been like would you talk to greer and i was like fuck yeah man i mean i you know <laughs> well i'll i'll start here and we're gonna get deep into under the banner of heaven but you're on the moment so i gotta do the thing that this show that i do here first i'm sure that you don't know this but one of my very best friends in the world like the if you know if I had two phone calls to make is David Sigerson. Wow. <laughs> and <laughs> that, so that, I've conjures, been here- that conjures up a lot. <laughs> we had a great yeah, few man. days with David. Yeah. That's yeah, he always but even before um you guys broke, you know, he talked about you. Uh and I've I've known David since I was in my very early twenties. And amazing. Um, yeah. He taught so he sent uh, his love to you and he always felt like wow that that band those guys have a thing and particularly spoke so highly of you do you have i mean in the in the in the haze of time do you and and with the emotions that have receded and uh the tragedy do you have fond memories of the bef- before times i've read a lot of interviews with you uh where you talk about what it takes to sort of you know why you have to keep doing all sorts of creative work I'm, you know, in the early days, you just have to, and uh, and I wonder if if there's any part of that time that you ever think about and, and miss, or or what the glow of those days is for you. Yeah, I mean the, you know the the beginning was you know when we started doing tours, it was like the mid early to mid '80s, and and so we you know we came out of hardcore and and the clubs and SST and making phone calls to make your way across the country. And <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it gets brought up every, 
few months about the tour that I booked in 1984 to make it to Boston. And like we played six shows in three weeks and it was, you know, connecting, connecting with Chuck Dukowski from SST and him getting us a couple of shows and, and uh, Corey Russ getting us a couple of shows. And I knew Steve Albini's best friend and uh, Randy Pepperock cause he was a Montana kid. So you're, you're, you're just hodgepodging together this thing to make your way across the country. And, it's, I, I do have a, uh, I do look at that time as just such an amazing time because we were, we were just throwing everything we could at it to make, just, you know, do what we saw like our favorite bands doing. And, um, you know, I think a part of me wanted to just had wanderlust and wanted to, I wanted to travel as much as I wanted to play music. Like I wanted to just see other parts of the world and other parts of the country. I wanted to go to CBGB's. I wanted to go to Minneapolis. I wanted to go to Austin and all, you know, all the places that had great music happening. So, um, you know, we, we, we get to do a little bit of that now. Like if there's a tour coming up, we'll be like, why haven't we been to Helsinki in 25 years or, or, you know, and you get to, but um, it's yeah. Not but there's as... a sacrifice required. There's a, when you're young, yeah. there are all measure, uh, all matter. You know, all these different kinds of sacrifices that you have to make. Uh, yeah. y- you know, constantly, right? You're and it's, I was thinking about why you connect to Krakow. I, I'm a gigantic Krakauer fan, and I yeah. I've read that you always would read them and stuff. And I so this totally jives with that, which is like this idea of. You know, you got to get some when you're when we're young in this, all of this, and we have these dreams of being a working artist, and then we start to be a working artist. We're constantly having to deny other aspects of ourselves to do it. And and now it's just a choice for you, right? Now you can just kind of do the thing you want to do, which creates different things have to press you forward, right? Well, you know, know, there's that thing that Burroughs said where he said, like, money's the evil of all creativity or whatever, whatever it is. And I, 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 I think about that a lot because I, you know, that there was something that happened in the eighties that, you know, when you're, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and I, you know, I didn't have a car, I didn't have insurance, like, you know, but I was completely happy. Like I was happy to work eight hours, 10 hours a day and ride my bike up to stone's house or wherever the rehearsal was yeah. and, and play. Um, and so, um, I, you know, you just try to get back. I think, I, I think I, we were all lucky in this band to sort of have gone through that. And that's sort of, uh, it's just our process. Like, even though we don't have to do it and we don't have to go on tour and we have money in the bank and all that stuff, I think we're every single guy is still driven to just make cool shit, to just like create and make art and, and try to make the other guy psyched about the thing that you did and, and all of that, you know, like probably the competition you have with, with David, right. I mean, it's probably yeah. a similar. Well, similar yeah. I was, it, as you were speaking, that's exactly what I was going to say, which is that Levine and I completely uh, want to show up. Uh, it's funny when people ask us about, and I'm sure you get this too. <laughs> I'm sure you get this too, which is sometimes people will say like, well, when the other guy has a line, don't you wish that you, and I'm like, Dude, when the other guy comes in with something amazing or a great idea, it's like the happiest moment of my yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you just raised yeah. your hands in the totally. victories. It's like, yeah. oh shit, this is why you're my guy and why we're in yeah. this together, right? Totally. It's the best totally. feeling. 
Uh, totally. Because, and for us, like you, where we've kept the thing together, because it always harkens back to the the moment I'm sure you first heard McCready play a certain riff, or you know, yeah. Stone come up with a melody, or Edge with a word. It's like it, it, right? You're living in this inside this thing that's 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 lasted, but but still, like, um, do you find a lot of bands, a lot of artists? It's easy once you've had some success to kind of float as opposed to have to dig. Like, yes, you want to do that. Is there a process by which you turn inward again and start to dig or where you say to yourself, I got to clear out and spend three days just playing and trying to find something? Because life can just float you along, can it? Or does your mind not work that way? You never float. Well, I, I mean, I mean, the you know, the, there's my wife and I, we don't have kids. So um, yeah. There's a downside to that, and that we don't have kids. <laughs> I mean, I, I do. You know, I mean, we we uh, we tried, and it it wasn't in our in our in our cards. And uh, so, you know, when we made that transition to where we knew we weren't going to have kids, I was like, okay, um, I'm going to use this to my benefit. Like, we can travel. We can. I can spend all day in the studio. If I want, I can wake yes. up every morning before my wife wakes up and I can write for two hours. I can. And so I, you know, rather than just, you know, go into a corner or get divorced or whatever, whatever people do, like yes. when they get dealt the cards that they don't want to have a crushing this. Yeah. When they get a crushing disappointment. Yes. Yeah. I, I was just like, okay, this is, this is how it is. And we're going to, you know, be more in the lives of our nieces and nephews and our friends, kids, and be involved with building skate parks for young people. And my wife yes. works for a nonprofit called BFI that works with young kids uh, who want to be writers and poets. And, and so uh, we have an incredibly creative life. Like we, we have, you know, it's so great after 25 years that she and I still get really excited to make dinner and sit down and talk about our yes. day and, and just get into the creative stuff and talk about the books we're reading and, you know, what you read in the New Yorker or whatever, you know, whatever's happening. Um, so, uh, I feel like, you know, I'm so lucky to have been given this life after, you know, basically growing up in a farm community and being a really poor kid in the eighties in Seattle and, and really not having a safety net. And all of a sudden I have a creative yes. life. I have, I, I just need to dedicate my life to like a staying in some sort of shape and B like making shit, just like, you know, just, I get to paint, I get to make music, I get to write, I get to collaborate with my friends. Um, I get to yes. skateboard. I'm 59 years old. I'm still skateboarding. And I'm, you get to play for hundred thousands of people, you know, millions oh and millions God. of people, whatever you, you know, all the time. What What's the process by which <laughs> you make decisions? And what I mean by that, because, you know, so many people who are artists want to be artists work from the creative center of their lives. You know, they're pulled in various different ways. Or like you say, a disappointment happens in their lives and they feel like, Oh, how am I going to be creative again? And so like, as I'm, you know, um, people who listen to this or have read any of my stuff know that I meditate and I journal and like the journaling eventually leads me to somewhere. And I talk, Amy and I yeah. are probably like you guys, Amy and I talk about everything all the time. We've been together for 30 years and all that right. stuff, you know, in a great way. But what is, do you, what is, do you have any kind of like 
process by which you look inward and then decide how you're going to spend your time. Uh, you know, when something like that happens and you're trying to process it, is there, is there a way that you're able to, okay, I'm going to feel these emotions for a period of time and then I'm going to start to make a, a plan. Does it, what does that evolve for you? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, we're lucky in that we have the freedom that we don't have to do anything. <laughs> so we sort of just, uh, I think most of us just do the things that we're sort of drawn towards. And uh, usually any project or any little solo record I'm making or any collaboration, uh, I usually know a few months in advance that, okay, I'm getting together with these folks five months from now. Uh. So you just, so I, I just... I get into that mode where I wake up in the morning and before I read a newspaper or, and just try to connect my dreams and all that subconscious stuff to like just the first things that you write down on the paper or the first time you put your hands on a keyboard yes. or, a, or a guitar. And that's almost like my meditative, like I've done tons of yoga and meditated and gone through all these different journeys. And I almost feel like just sitting down with a guitar and a, in a, notebook is the most meditative thing that I can do. Like it's, I find out more about myself um, because you're, you're just, you're just throwing stuff out there in color and I have paint. I, Cause I'm ADD too. So I'm just got, you got all this stuff. Me too. I got yeah. all this stuff going on. And then somewhere down the road, sometimes it's later that day. Sometimes it's years later. You go like, Whoa, what, what was that? What's yes. that little, <laughs> you circle it and you go like, what was I saying there? And that's like, that's such a, again, it's like I'm afforded this creative life and it's, it feels really healthy too. It really feels like I've come upon this self-therapy mode that is just part of my art. Yes. Well, it's funny. You've, you've been afforded this life, you say, and uh, which is a kind of a distancing way to say it or a way of, <laughs> of grace about it, right? But, you know, there's the famous argument you had with Mark Arm. And, uh, you know, because I, well, you got to understand, like, I was a record collector as a, as a boy because of the way I grew up. And, and you know, I mean, I had the Green River album. I, I just had it. You know, I, I, yeah. I saw, I mean, I saw Mud Honey. I, I'm yeah. in Seattle uh, in, in 88. Like, yeah. I, so I know all this. I understand the, yeah. this stuff in a very uh, inside way, right? But I mean, so the story goes that you had this argument. One of the reasons you guys broke up was like about different levels of ambition. I understand you, you know, you reference SST. I, I, I understand the ethos. So that's funny. I just heard uh, Patterson and Craig Finn talking about what SST meant, meant to them on Finn. Have you heard Craig Finn's new podcast? Anyone? No. I, I, I'm just kind of getting into the podcast world the last, well, kind of the last half of the pandemic. So, and it's, Craig Finn just, is the lead. So much. Lead. Yeah, whole well, Craig Fan yeah. leads in the yeah. whole study. Yeah. He's just did this six episode podcast about memory, and oh, wow. uh, you'll love it. It's incredible. And Patterson Hood is on the first episode. I'm on the second episode. You can pass on mine, but Patterson's incredible. And they're but they talk about what SST meant to them when they were uh, when they when they were young. Uh, or or no, it's episode three that talks about that with Fred Armisen. He's talking about it. But but this is my question. What you know the famous argument is you, you were like well. I'm not a careerist just because I want my rent paid and I want to be able to have a life. And, and he was living this, you know, in his mind, I'm sure it's all changed now. You guys were very, very, very young. You know, he was like, well, fuck all that. I want, all I care about is making music. But in a way, do you think you had some notion that the way to be able to live the life of the artist 
was because because the fact that that story is known means that this didn't just happen to you, Jeff. Like some part of you had to really know what you wanted somewhere, don't you think? Well, you know, um, how do I put this in a, um, I, you know, I think I had um, a different level of survival happening in the, at that time. Like uh, I, I, I moved to Seattle. I knew two people in town when I moved to Seattle. Um, I didn't talk to my dad for four or five years during that time. Um, ha- literally had zero safety net. I mean, I, I had a little bit of a safety net. If it got really bad, I could have gone back to big Sandy, Montana, where I grew up, but that seemed like, it just seemed like there was no chance that I was going to do that. And I think, so I think I was sort of driven in a different way. Like, I mean, most of the guys that I was in green river with, um, they were maybe working part-time jobs, going to school, um, maybe getting a little bit of help, maybe right. living yeah. home, kind of these things. I was living with three people in a studio apartment and working eight hours a day and taking the bus and riding my skateboard to work or whatever it was. And and there was a point, you know, after you do that for a few years, you start to you start to creep into your mid-20s and you haven't gone back to college like you thought you were gonna do. And you're kind of losing the plot. And I, you know, I think there probably was just some level of desperation. Um, and, and again, just survival. Like, I, you know, I, like I still have student loans to pay for. And I, you know, like I'm, cause I did go to college for two years. And, and so I, you know, I, I was a terrible communicator in those days. So I, I don't think any of that ever came out to Mark or came out, in, you know, in our, in our, talks, but I, I just think, um, you know, some of it was musical. Some of it was just feeling like maybe we, it had run its course. Um, um, I mean, we were on sub pop, but sub pop was just flailing around. Like, you know, we were paying for half the records and paying for promotion for some of those records. So, you know, um, I, you know, I, I, we witnessed a few things we witnessed, you know, we witnessed what Jane's addiction was doing and we witnessed what was happening you know, with REM and yes, Husker Du and the Austin bands and the replacements. And, and I think Stone and I just wanted that. We just wanted to, we wanted a van and, you know, <laughs> we wanted to have a budget to go in and make records and, and not big records, like give us $10,000 so we can make a record, you know, like, um, but just getting a taste of that, you know, like from my very first hardcore band, you know, through Green River, like we went in the studio and re- and recorded songs. And that was just like the best life. It was just the best. It was like you were doing this thing. You were making this magic that was something that, you know, you grew up with. Like I started, you know, listening to music with my mom and my uncle when I was six years old. And I just got obsessed with it. The first time I heard Sound of Silence, I was just like, what the hell is yeah. that? You know, like. Um, and I just knew I wanted to be in the room when that stuff was going down. I just wanted to be a part of that like once, you know? Yeah. There is nothing like hearing sound of silence for the first time. That's such a great, I mean, that's such a great thing, but you know, and then you have, how does it feel to you to know that many, 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 many people, you know, Pearl Jam fanatics, but people who aren't even Pearl Jam fanatics remember the first time they heard Jeremy. Like, which you wrote, right? And, and uh, wh- 
that must like are you able to tap into that ever like that that is sound of silence for like <laughs> legions of people you know what i mean like that song in particular and yes because ed wrote those incredible words yeah. in that video but take separating all that out like you were a dude playing music and you wrote this music and then this thing happens can you connect to that ever as a from a i don't know if it's a place of gratitude or sort of understanding that kind of impact yes the impact the band has but like wow that that song started thousands of bands yeah I, I have you know more so in the last 10 years i have more gratitude than i've ever had and i just feel so fortunate that we made it past like the 15 20 year mark because yeah. the first 10 15 years i just had my head down and i was just trying to be a whirling derivation i was just trying to like get inside the music and just perf that was my way of performing was just like getting in it and and um and i'd hardly ever looked up and i hardly i had a hard time people said good show or great record or great song i had a hard time receiving yes. that um and i feel i do feel like in the last 10 15 years with a little help from therapy um that i've been able to um really take really have gratitude towards everything our band has done and our collaborative process just how giving everybody has been. Um, and when you hear, you know, young kids say like that they love 10 or they love the, those yes. early records, like that's, 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 there's, you know, yeah, it's like, again, like we're here 30 years later and like we're so lucky. We're just so fucking yes. lucky to be, to be here and, and to hear that and, Last night it happened in Frankfurt. There, there's a song that Ed wrote on the new record called River Cross that I, it was, it's like my favorite, maybe my favorite song that he's ever written. And mainly because it's like, he wrote, wrote it on a pump organ. So he's playing completely differently than he would on his guitar. So the rhythm's different. And then he just wrote this incredible lyric. And I, and uh, there's a lyric at the end and uh, uh, share the light won't hold us back. Like, and I just said, man, I want to hear the crowd singing that oh, back to us awesome. at some point. And last night was the first, maybe the second or third time that we played it live. But last night was the first time where it was like, that's what I imagined. Oh, that's and the awesome. crowd just gradually like started turning their cell phone lights on, the, the new Bic lighter. And the whole, this beautiful place called Fest Hall, it's a hundred year old domed building that survived two world wars like it was just coming back at us. And that's when you feel like the gratitude You just, it, you know, like all of a sudden it's like end of life, you know, everything's just, you know, yes. where you're like, well, it's just looking around. So grateful that you made it to this moment because that's why we do it. It's such a joy for the audience now to have music, to be able to go see music again. And I'm sure for you to get to play music yeah. again and yeah. where, because it's amazing how much I missed it. It's incredible how much I missed getting to go and see bands that I love. And Ed's, Ed's solo, Ed's show at the Beacon was my first concert back really. And, uh, you know, it was an amazing thing just to be able to see that, like to be there and be a part of, of that and see the joy on his face you know what i yeah. mean yeah. getting to perform i when you guys i mean i just can't wait for you to come through the east coast i'll 
I'm going to definitely come out for more than one show. It's 100% coming out. I can't wait to go to New show. York. It's it's the longest it's been since I haven't been in New York in three years, but, which is crazy. Yeah, it's a long time. Dude, yeah, come. Come back. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 um, you know, you just said something, Jeff, about the way the first bunch of years you were head down inside the music, not really looking up. And I'm, I'm just connecting that in a way to what it must have had to be like for you to be head down and focused to not talk to members of your family and to you know risk disappointing people. And in a way, you probably had to turn a lot of those functions off to do the thing that you wanted to do because if you looked up and engaged in another way, you might have just abandoned it and gone and become a, a professor somewhere, which is a great life, but just not the life you wanted, right? Yeah, you know, um, I, you know, again, I think every guy in the band probably can look back and see that fork in the road where you just decided to stick with it because it felt like it was what you wanted to do. You know, like, you know, even even when I think about, you know, the famous conversation with Mark Arm, which there really never was, but there was a there was a vibe <laughs> and there was a, you know, you know, I don't even know why we were following this course, you know, and a lot of it was Stone and I were following this course and sort of having these conversations that would sort of, if one of us started to veer off for some reason, one of us would talk to the other one and we would sort of, we stayed on this thing because I, you know, I, I didn't have a backup plan. I, you know, it's like, yeah, it's I mean, very what, powerful. What's, what's my backup plan? I, um, you know, maybe ultimately I, go back and marry a girl from my hometown and work on a farm. I, you know, I, it's like, there's just no, there's no backup plan. So it was just sort of following, you know, just following a feeling. And the feeling was seeing bands and playing with bands and just seeing this magic happen. And you, it's, it's, there it, it was just an, an addictive quality to that feeling that you felt when you were in the room watching those bands play. And it, it's like, he just wanted a taste of it he just wanted to like oh yeah of course and it wasn't even about selling records it was about the feeling it was, it was about you know being with four other guys in an audience and just having this thing happen and yes you know and we and you know we loved music so much and all we talked about was music and art and even when i was at work i worked at this place called the raison d'etre that was all artists and it was it was a uh, really important part of the artistic gay community in Seattle. It was in Belltown and it was like kind of one of the first coffee shops. And, and it was such a massive influence because everybody came to work and we had to work, but we, everybody just talked art and music That's and the theater. And, yeah. and I got turned on to so much. And, you know, that was, that was sort of when I knew that there was like a, you know, that was my people. And, and, oh yeah. Finding your try. I want to, yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to be around. I just wanted to be around those people. I just, I, because I didn't really grow up with that. So you, you grew up, there was no one to talk to about. Our, our oh stuff yeah. There, or... I, I had a, I had a handful of friends, my friend Perry and his brother, Henry, who were, um, you know, his, my friend Perry's older brother bought import. He bought like the first ACDC record and, bought the New York dolls and bought the stooges and um, uh, my friend, Reggie Springer, who I had a subscription to cream magazine. He had a subscription to circus magazine. We gave each other rock and roll quizzes, you know, so there was, there was some, those magazines were so important, man. 
they were so important those magazines yeah. they were because they even though like i grew up in a record business family uh the music i liked was so foreign to my dad and i had to i, w I had a kerrang subscription you know when i was yeah, uh, so stone stone and mike have amazing kerrang stories because it's the early kerrang years it was it was like gold finding those magazines, even in Seattle. For me, know? it was gold. Like the a, a friend of mine just got COVID, and he had, he's a, a punk uh, guy, and he was like, "Can you make me a a playlist of the new wave of British heavy metal? I'm ready." He's like, "I'm ready for a playlist," <laughs> and I was like, "Ah, oh, I, I like I haven't you know made a new wave of British heavy metal playlist since I was 13 or 14." And I was like, "Yes, I can't wait." <laughs> yeah, my so, my friend my friend Perry, who who I grew up with, he later on like he moved to Seattle a year or two after I did, but that was his whole jam: Diamond Head and Angel yeah, Witch and all that yeah, stuff. All like that shit. He, Tigers he of Pentang, yeah, to, yeah. He drug me to a Merciful Fate show, which was incredible. Like, <laughs> I mean, so I made fun. I was like a hardcore kid, but I, well, of course that, you made fun of it. Yeah, but he would put those records on. I'd be like, whatever, like. Ah! Like, I, you know, but I saw the show and it was like unbelievably powerful, incredible well, band. Yeah, of course. So. No one. Of course, it brings you. I mean, that you know, <laughs> I mean, the amazing thing that you guys did because of the disparate influences. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, that's why Pearl Jam was so changed the world, because it was taking kids who grew up with metal and kids who grew up with hardcore and going yeah. like, there's a lot more to get, you know, and also the metal kids had grown, you know, guys like me. I. uh you know, I graduated college in 88. So by college, REM mattered. REM and the replacements had become my favorite bands. Yeah. I left that stuff b behind. So, yeah. but the combo, you know, you, you, Makes you, sense. you cross Diamond Head and the replacements, you know. <laughs> yeah, not. You, you know, you're pretty much there. Uh, but, so I, I have one heavy sort of a question I want to ask you, and it ties into Under the Banner of Heaven, for which you just did the, the score with some collaborators. So I've read crack all crack hours books. I found Under the Banner of Heaven very very difficult to read because it's um so unrelentingly dark and brutal yeah. and important, you know, you have to press on and read it. You have to understand this stuff and and uh like you, I have I have sort of deep questions about the function religion serves in America and all that stuff. Um but like we're living in these super tribal times. And I think I want to start as a way to tie into the under the manner of heaven thing with like, you know, and you've mentioned a lot in interviews, your personal evolution in terms of dealing with the sort of legacy of your Catholicism. Uh, but can you, can we start here? Like, can, can you talk about what it's, it's like to be like the leader of, a tribe in a way like you guys as a band have this huge yeah. tribe. You made these choices to take it away from being part of like just the popular culture to become this tribe. And, and, and like what responsibilities do you feel knowing that and knowing, uh, you know, you, you, you may or may not redefine what you guys believe in or stand for or how you approach it as the, as, as the times go. Um, and, and, and it does seem like, the way people feel about Pearl Jam, the way people felt about the dead, you know, there are only a very few bands that have the kind of relationship with their tribe that you, you do. What, what has it made you understand about the power that leaders of tribal organizations have? 
You know, the, the, one of the most amazing things to witness is, um, and I think it started early on with us and it was just purely like our fans watching how we conducted business. And, and that was by, um, supporting lots of local organizations and everybody in the band has groups of organizations that we've supported over the course of our band, all the way back to the early nineties. And to watch our, to watch our fans sort of, well, our fans would create these little sub organizations that would then in kind donate to like our organizations or organizations of the like. And to me, that's the most beautiful thing. Um, like sort of um, just wearing the, the, the volunteer or the, you know, the, um, the community aspect of just paying attention to what's going on and paying attention to where the need is and just to watching our fans just conduct themselves in a way that it just feels like they're, it just feels like they're one of us. And that it just feels, you know, it, it's just, it makes it just extra special. Um, it's, it's not just fans coming to the show and yes, having a bunch of drinks and just letting the top fly off and, and then just so they can kind of hunker back into their normal life the next day. It's like they come and they sort of, sort of are absorbed into the fabric of, of what our band is and what we're trying to do as a community and how we're trying to support our communities. And it's just makes it more powerful. It, it, I, I mean, I, I've talked about this before too, like how punk rock, like seeing the dead Kennedys or seeing MDC or seeing these bands that had like politics at their core and how much they cared and, and how they were sleeping on couches. They were still selling records and stuff, but they were like, they were really doing it the way that, you know, you're supposed to do it and um seeing music that really means something that is life and death it's just an extra it just takes it up another level yeah i would think it of course it's an amazing thing but i wonder <laughs> i didn't i wonder your <laughs> what's that i didn't answer your question did i well but i know no no that no you did you set the kind of you you set the soil right the for you the, the but you're you guys are in Europe right now but I know you understand what's going on here and I know you understand the tribalism and the way in which leaders decide to either like abdicate their actual moral responsibility or lean into it and you guys have constantly leaned into it taking responsibility when you fucked up like you guys are you know uh, it's a, it's an amazing thing to to have watched pretty closely for a long time but but i also have to think that from that perch it gives you a different way to look at the choices that leaders could make if they were willing to make those choices i don't want to put words in your mouth but i'm just asking if and you know taking into account like i'm saying the various forms of fundamentalism the tradition out of which you came do you think about it and 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 do you see the downside of this kind of tribalism that that can exist if it's not managed with love yeah i mean i, I you know i feel like personally and i think i think the other guys feel the same way i mean i think i i feel like i sort of shift back and forth where if 
if I'm watching the news too much, and especially if I'm watching the news, if I'm if I'm reading the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Economist and the Atlantic, then it feels like it's it's more tempered and not as emotional. And it's easier for me then to sort of have this rational, like, okay, we just need to have these conversations with people and we need to reach across the aisle and we need to like understand and kind of all those things. But then this horrible shit happens where they start shooting up schools and they start taking away women's rights. And you're just like, your fucking head explodes. And you're like, it's so hard to just stay tethered to that, the connection to the other side. Sometimes it's like, it's, yes, it's, it's. And so I think, you know, that's the great thing about being on tours. We can sort of rant and rave. And then at the end of it, you can kind of go, okay, how do we, how do, yeah, how do we, we formulate this into words? And, and Ed yeah. is so fantastic, um, you know, in terms of just having tons of conversations, not just with the band, but with like his, his community and then just formulating, uh, uh, I mean, sometimes he gets pissed off and whatever, but, but often he is very calmly, you know, trying to understand and trying to make, I think the only way that you can make a difference is if you can just let, because I, I have friends, I have friends that are still back in Trump and whatever, and so you just want to understand and you want to let them know that you're not being condescending and that you're, and it's where I came from. So I, I, I feel like I even have a, a better understanding of of why those people think that the way that they do, and I just don't want to throw it into the like they're afraid and you know the obvious stuff. Like, okay, so I know you love McCartney, but like, especially now with the soundtrack, I think he was like a John Paul Jones figure in certain ways, you know, which I'm sure is also okay <laughs> yeah. in a way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was thinking about this, like the fact that Pearl Jam's a movement and not just a rock band and like, and because you guys are expected to have opinions about this shit because of the, yes, because of the way Ed has, has always spoken out because of the various choices you made, like, and maybe that's. I think a huge part of the longevity is those choices you made not to become Led Zeppelin. But do you ever wonder if it would have been easier if you just let yourselves become Led Zeppelin and just a rock band, you know, or. Yeah. I mean, every day, every day, every day, you, (laughs) every day, you, and especially this last five or six years where every day it's just something else where you're like, you know, you feel like you do feel a responsibility as a citizen that, okay, I got to, I got to see who I can help out with this and with that. And, and oftentimes it's sort of organizations that you feel like the government should be, have some piece of it, you know, like if somebody breaks their arm, they should be able to fix their arm or if um, somebody's having mental health issues or, you know, just basic, I mean, we were paying a good amount of tax and uh, way too much of it is going towards the military. And, and so, you know, um, Right. And all Jimmy Page had to figure all Jimmy Page had to think about was which satanic ritual to do that night. I mean, that's much easier, right? If you I mean just figuring out which animal to sacrifice is just way easier, you would think. I mean, that's the you know, and there is I mean I'm kidding, whatever. people. Before you before you write me letters, I'm just fucking around. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. But there but look what Jimmy did 
with the devil and the oblivion of drugs. I mean, Jimmy was, you know, one of my favorite musicians of all time. So I think, you know, in terms of your quest to be an artist, there pro that probably was a, you know, dabbling in that for a period of time allowed him to write these, incre these incredible songs and, and have this vision for this sound that nobody's ever even come close to. Um, so, yeah, dude, you know, I was listening to Stevie, Steve, I was listening to Stevie Van Zant, a fellow rock and roll hall of fame member as, as you are. And, uh, he played, um, he played good times, bad times on, on, you know, underground garage the other day. And he was first like, song. yeah. And that's, he goes, you know, Oh, I'm driving with Amy in the car and have that. That's the best radio station now. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, Pearl sure. Jam Radio is great, but Stevie's station's <laughs> amazing, you know? I agree. And, oh, yeah, of course you would, like, love that station. But he plays Good Times, Bad Times, and he's like, just listen. Like, just understand this is John Bonham's first time recording. And uh, we fucking, you know, obviously I've listened to Zeppelin 1 uh, 20,000 times in my life, you know, some crazy yeah. number of times. But suddenly it was like, yeah, when people tap into a sound, a thing, it, and it's never been there before. It's yeah. crazy, right? I, so yeah, yeah, it's funny that Jimmy Page, whether it was really the devil, he just liked the shit around it, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> they did find a thing, Yeah, as, as you did, which is, so this is the most, um, I know you're new to podcasts, but when I started this podcast, and I started it in 2013, it was actually Bill Simmons who gave me a podcast first, and who's you wow. know, the biggest Pearl Jam fan, still my dear yeah, from Bill, recording Bill's a pod awesome. with him on Friday. Uh, yeah. But the very first thing that I wanted to do a pod about was like these moments in people's lives and what they are aware of, either high points or low points. But like the example I always used was the first time that Buck, Mills, Barry, and Stipe played in that church together and looked at each other. Like, did they know this was different? Did they have any idea anywhere in their brains of what they were about to do in the world? And so, you know, I got to ask you, like, you'd gone through all the tragedy and everything else, and Ed famously Ed put his song on those tracks, whatever. When, the first time you were in a room as the, the Mookie Blaylock, but as those guys, and Ed was singing your songs, what did it, did you have any sense oh, we did it, this is the thing, like, we're gonna be one of, we have a chance to be one of the biggest bands in the world? Or was it just like, oh, this vibe feels good? Like, what was that, what was that initial moment you all played together like? You, you know, I, at some point that first week, um, he came up for, yeah, six or seven days, and I think we rehearsed for five days before we played a show or recorded and played a show, which is kind of insane, but it was a tryout. <laughs> and, uh, but I remember, I don't know if it was the first day or the second day or the third day, but there was a couple of songs that we wrote just sort of out of thin air. And those songs were oceans and release and release in particular. I remember we were just sort of playing this sort of, Stones playing this hypnotic yeah. thing, and I'm just playing the, what sounds just like a, it's just a, the simplest of bass melodies. And he just started singing, and then he sort of, it was sort of like, um, it was it was a scat. And then I just remember when he's when he's tapped into the, he changed the melody and basically changed the key to the song, and started singing 
what was became the chorus. And I remember at the end of that day going like, that was some shit. That was, that was, that, you know, yeah. because it wasn't, it wasn't us sitting around talking about, Hey, I, I got these two parts. And if you could play a little less in this, you know, and, and overcompensating. And that kind of set the tone for how we made music those first couple of records where, I mean, versus, you know, a lot of that record was stone coming in with a riff or two and then us just hammering out the details and writing another part and, and um, creating the arrangement. And there's something amazing about um, that process. And that, that happened the first or second day with Ed for sure, where I think I, I've been quoted somewhere saying like, it was the first time I was in a room with music playing that I would play at home. Right. And, and I, and, and that, and that's, that's, I remember that. I remember that feeling. I remember feeling like, wow, this is. You, you had a sense of this could really be the thing, even different than when you were in MLB, like either, even different than, than, than uh, mother love bone in a way. I think we tapped into some of that in mother love bone too. Um, But the, the creative life of mother love bone was really short. And then it, yeah, of course. And then we spent a year, a year and a half recording these songs that we wrote the first year and really didn't write that last year, year and a half because we were sort of, it it felt almost a little bit stifled and it. I don't know if Pearl Jam's ever felt stifled. I think, um, I think it's always creatively, it's just, it's just getting the five of us in a room. And once we're in the room, it just stuff kind of happens. And that's, that's the biggest, hardest part. No, that completely makes sense. Yeah, I had, I didn't know it at the time, but Neil Pert was was obviously sick, and Getty came over to my apartment, and we we recorded a podcast together, and it was the only time I ever heard him talk about it at the time. But he talked about Neil's audition and this moment when Neil played and and left, and Alex Getty wanted to say this on Alex was like just bass player. Alex said. I mean, Getty said that Alex was like, let's keep, you know, we got to keep, we got three more guys or whatever. And, and Getty said, he just went, no, 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 this, yeah. this, what we just saw, what I just felt, yeah. this is it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I imagine that that must've been some of what was going on in the room for you guys, where it was just like, oh my God, we did it. And, it was- and we had heard how, you know, bands in LA have these tryouts where they try out a hundred people. And that just sounded like hell to me. You know, I just, I mean, so much, I mean, even before we got in a room and played together, Ed had written those three songs. And then Ed and I had these many late night conversations just talking about uh, what kind of a band we wanted to be in. And it was all about doing the work. It was all about making the t-shirts and making cool posters. And like, you know, it was all about, it was all, it was just all the stuff, but it was, it was about having guys that wanted to do the work. And, and so that, you know, that, oh, yeah, that was, of course that, you knew that it was all a long slog, even though then it turned out not to be in a way, but you knew yeah. it, you knew because yeah. you had this years of experience of knowing, well, Hey, we might be great, but it's a fucking slog to get there. Yeah. And right? feeling like my back was really against the wall. I was like, I was, 27, 28, you know, I was heading towards 30 going like, Oh shit, I'm doing this all over again from scratch, you know? So, um, so just to hear like, and singers, I think, I mean, we have had some fairly hardworking singers over the the course of our career, but, um, 
but to just to hear a guy that's going to be your singer talk about doing the work. Oh yeah. That was like, Oh, he, he's going to actually be helping lift the cases into the thing. That's the first, you know, or, you know, yeah. so, um, so that was exciting. You know, it's like, and, and I think I've always just been that I, I just wanted to be around people that wanted to put the same amount of effort into it that I was going to put into it, which for me is like, if you showed up, I, I think that was part of what my dad gave me. It was like, Hey, if you, Hey, we're here. We might as well get those bales of hay, you know, up into the, up into the loft, you know, yeah, get the work done yeah, for sure. Got two hours. So we might as well, what else are we going to do? You know, what a pain in the so. ass, but yes, very important. What is it about um, filmic stories? Because that's like the first thing that both Samino and Greer said. They were like, you know, Amen, really, when he locks in on a show or they like, they were like, you really love this stuff. Like you're into this stuff. And uh, so what, what made you want to engage in all this stuff and become, you know, do uh, scores, you know, do comp composing for uh, film material? Like, did you always, I know you're a painter too. So that, that, that tracks, but it is by definition, you're serving somebody else's vision when you're yeah. com a composer on uh, film or television. It's a collaboration, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, and you can inspire, I've read Dustin talk about it. You can inspire people, obviously. But ultimately, you're serving the vision that somebody else has. You made this incredibly accomplished, strange, and deep score, which the piece requires. Uh, the show is really great, but it's also just I, I I'll, I'm only midway. I can't I can't press on at this moment. I will. <laughs> uh, it's just I'm not I'm, I'm too too. Oh. I'm in the country. I, it's just you know yeah. it, it no, literally puts it. the worst of our. It's, it literally puts the worst of of what is plaguing us just right there on this fucking yep. screen, in every way. All the issues are just right there. Uh, yeah. But what is it about this stuff that 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 draws you uh, and 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 keeps you so animated and engaged? It's it's very different than band work. Well, I you know I think you know I I've talked about this a little bit too, but I, I built this house in Montana, and the house is com is completely built around this big room that is mostly a studio, but there's a hoop at one end, and there's a living room at the other end. But the idea in building it was I was going to make ambient music. And so over the course of the last 30 years, I've made a piece here and a piece there. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of a frugal, I have a frugalness about creativity. Like there has to be some, uh, there has to be some goal or some a purpose to it. Yeah. yeah. There has to be something feeding this thing. And so I just never went all the way in um, with it until this came along. And it was, it really was just like the perfect opportunity. Um, I mean, I just, I love crack Hire so much. I love that book so much. It, it jarred so much when I first read it just about my own journey, you know, being a seeker and just trying to understand um, my first 18 years with, uh, spirituality and religion. And, um, and then it was just having those first couple conversations with Lance that were, that were just like, it was, he's, he is such an incredible alchemist in terms of 
you know, he, he just kept saying like, ah, I'm into this and this, but Hey, don't pay attention to that. Do your own thing. I, you know, you, like you're a great musician. Like I trust you. You understand the story. You understand um, the darkness and the lightness battling each other. We, we just had these amazing conversations. So I, I felt like initially he was giving us a ton of freedom, which I don't know if that's the case with a lot of, uh, film work. Um, and so we went into it before we had seen a thing. We spent 10 days just creating these incredible sonic beds and, and Josh Evans and Josh Klinghoffer and I were just getting off, just having these 12, 14 hour days of making music. And, you know, by the third or fourth day, we were, we were sort of tapping into like a thing and it felt brand new. It felt like nothing that any of us had ever done. And it wasn't writing songs. It was um, it was creating these beds and then just creating these moods within the beds and getting heavy and getting light and and tweaking these looper machines we had all over the room. And it was just so musical. It was it really felt like um, the sort of improv that you know I've always wanted to do and not having jazz chops. <laughs> That's funny. Like were you thinking, sort of, were you thinking to yourself as you were doing it, do you think just the fact that you had taken in this material of the book, you knew about yeah. the sort of ways fundamentalism can take people over basically holding on to what you knew emotionally, it was yeah. just going to show up in the music. You, you were confident. Hey, I have that. So if that's in my head, that's going to just show up in the piece. Is yeah. that what and, was going and, on? And, and, and us having these conversations about things that were, uh, you know, in the screenplay and things that were things that that Lance kept repeating in these conversations. Like I would just keep bringing up these things. I had pages of stuff written down of uh, him talking about the Celestia, you know, it's just talking about all just all the verbiage and, and saying like, ah, I think we need to get lighter here. It needs to be we're playing a little bit too much here. You know, it would be these broad um, this broad direction, you know, like, hey, let's do this or let's and and it really was like just us interpreting what we thought it was going to be those first 10 days right and the amazing thing was then when we did get episodes we could just you know i made this list of the first 50 what we call the first 50 banners and i had like the keys written out and the you know the adjectives and what i thought it you know and the sections because some of the pieces were like an hour and a half long yeah you have these sections and then, so when we started watching the episodes, you'd just be looking through this thing and be like, oh yeah, Banner 32 oh, awesome. has this section that's like where we're doing all the percussion in the room. And, and so we got to just lay some of that stuff in initially where we're just, you know, pulling from our toolbox. And then we got to oftentimes play to the track and create space or create a hit, you know, where it needed. And, um, and then it was just the, at that point, then it was the going back and forth um, with the editors. And, and, and that part was fascinating to me because I've never. Oh, it is fascinating. The music editors and the, and the, because, because uh, you know, ultimately you're sitting in the editing, I'm sitting in the editing room and I, and I'm working with incredible composer, but like a moment's not quite playing and it could be not quite playing because of something I fucked up as a making shoot. Yeah. The only thing that's going to fix it is the score doing this, yeah. but then finding a language is, it's, you know, 
finding a language where you can communicate in a way that's still inspiring to the composer, but getting what you need, it's it's one of the great uh, parts. Yeah. And also it's hard, you know, it's hard. Yeah. You, you ever listen to David Lynch's book, Catching the Big Fish? No, I should, because oh, he, he was born in Missoula. It's awesome. Yeah, right. He's Montana. He was, it's really, uh, but he talks about his composer, Angelo Badalamente, and how he talks to him. Oh, it's really good for the to like for going around Europe. It's a great. It's about meditation. Yeah. Half the book's yeah, about yeah. TM, but it's yeah. about how it's informed his creative process. I think you might. I think you might yeah. get some. As awesome. a, I'm a bad ADHD person, and that book was great for me in lots of different yeah. ways. You might um, dig it. All right, with just a couple of more, uh, a couple minutes left here. Uh, I just want to ask you a couple of questions, and before we're done, what what do you? Who are the? Oh, this one I wanted to ask you. It, what's your favorite Brian Eno album? Like if somebody has, cause a lot of people listen to this don't know weirdly if you're our age, you're a couple years older than me, but if you're our age, like you can't imagine people not knowing who Eno is really, but like a lot of people don't, if you had to recommend like two Brian Eno records, what would they be? Uh, I mean, I, I, I gravitate towards the, the ambient stuff. So discreet music to me is just That's like, amazing. Um, incredible. Believable. Like I, and the airport I've, one too, right? What's the airport one called? Uh, uh, yeah, well, there's uh, music for airports. Um, yeah, I love that record too. But Apollo oh, Atmosphere, Apollo Atmospheres is incredible. That's a little bit later, and that's very early Daniel Lanois. Um, uh, so I would say those. I'd say Apollo Atmospheres and Discrete Music. Um, great. I mean his the, his song records are great too. But um, I mean, and, and that's a the great thing is that's a journey that you can, you could spend the rest of your life going down. He's made so much great music. Yeah. I mean, you referenced Lanois, who to me is just an incredible composer too. And I mean, I'm a huge yeah. Lanois person. So that makes sense. Yeah. People should check out Daniel Lanois records also, I think. Yeah. And live, if you can see that guy live with his band, it's like, I, you know, I've seen him a handful of times with Brian blade and Daryl Johnson, the bass player is a trio. And it's like, you've never, <laughs> you guys never worked with Lanois though. Right. No, but we did, we made, um, we recorded three songs from Vitalogy at Kingsway in New Orleans, which might be the three best sounding songs that we've ever recorded. And it was just a... In his, in that place he has, in that house he has in New Orleans, where he recorded, where he recorded Oh Mercy, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, you know, the council was in the middle of the room and the drums kind of went in this little sunroom and... But I think we recorded Last Exit, Tremor Christ, and Nothing Man. I mean, th- and and those tracks to me just have this sound that's and and uh, I think yeah, t- his his uh, his engineer Tina was worked with this, but it was it was just Brendan and us. I mean, yes. you know, he wasn't anywhere around, but it still had no. Nah, but that's the thing about vibe. Lenoir. you can feel those vibes. Whether I mean, I'm yeah, I'm I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any of that stuff, but I still think his <laughs> vibes, except maybe the vibes of Daniel Lenoir, like they're definitely yeah. there. Uh, all right, last question. It is about identity in a way, and um, switching modes from like a group identity to a personal artistic identity. Do you? Does it matter to you? Are you always like Jeff from Pearl Jam, uh, or you know, uh, or is it important to have this? artistic identity that's 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 separate from from the group oh man i i don't even know if i think about it that much that's I, great I th- um i think uh i think I, you know ultimately like I, I i say this a lot it probably annoys the other guys I, I always say like i wish we made more records i wish we got together more and made more music 
but I don't know if it would be as special if we did just make music all the time and it would probably burn itself out. So um, again, like I, I've, I've been afforded this time. And so I, I just, uh, you know, I just yes. want to, I just want to get better. I just want to make stuff. Why, this is the last question. Cause my friend, Peter Cohn, who's a, he's like the biggest Pearl Jam fan. He's, I mean, that guy has seen you more times. <laughs> he took me to the to garden uh, a few years ago, like I guess five years ago in like, uh, to see the guy's just obsessed. So I texted him. I was like, all right, I just texted him right before like, all right, you got a question. What do you want to know? And it, here's what he asked. It's, it's a, a, a good one, which is just, what's the process by which you decide when you're in the rehearsal space and you guys are writing together, how do you figure out, okay, this riff of Stones, okay, this musical bed of mine, how do you guys talk to each other around that stuff and in a way that's kept the thing together? and take care of your, your own ego needs or whatever that is and, and, and theirs? Like, how does that, how does that work? Uh, it's, you know, I think it's, it's been different over the years. Um, I think early on, um, I, well, I remember when we when Stone and I decided to play with each other again, I remember we had a dinner and I said, hey, it can't be like a mother love bone where, you know, you're just a bulldozer and, and we're, we're just, only playing to your ideas right. um, because I wrote songs, complete songs before that. Which and so I, clearly I, I knew I could, yeah. I knew I could do it. Um, and so I think from the very beginning with Pearl Jam, we've sort of had this idea that everybody like, you know, could lay something on the table. And oftentimes when we're in the room, it's either, Hey, you got a riff, you got a song. Um, sometimes it's like, Hey, do you got a demo of something? Um, we've gone through periods where we would give Ed a tape of 15 yes. demos, um, some complete, some not. Um, and so it's, um, you know, a, a lot of times it's just what Ed's inspired by. And, and, and a lot of times at time, it's just timing. It's like, if, if the iron's hot and, and you just happen to yes, your song across the table at the right time, um, yeah, and, and he's receptive to it. Um, then it becomes a Pearl Jam song, and um, and you just always sort of trust that process. Like there are records that you know the band's worked up five or six of my songs, and one of them only one of them makes the record, and you're you're kind of bummed out. But you're like, oh well, like, and then the next time you only give them three songs, but they all end up on the record. Um, Right. So it lets you now get to a place where you're just like, I guess it's going to sort out the way it's supposed to sort out because it's working. Yeah. And we, and we do have, we do have these conversations when we're putting the records together um, about what's the, what's the record. And sometimes we have very different ideas on what that is, but um, I'm always pushing for a, a new sound or a new type of song or weirdness, or I, I just sort of feel like at this point we've, again, we've sort of earned the right to make the art that we want to make. And, uh, you know, the, any idea of trying to like write a hit or be in the biggest band of the world sweepstakes with you two and whoever else, um, I, that stuff doesn't excite me. I, you know, what excites me is just making great art and, and to hear Ed sing a different melody and to hear Matt play a different, drum beat and to hear Mike play a lead in a different way. Yes. And, you know, so, uh, yeah, that all makes sense, man. Yeah. 
That all makes total something sense. New. That that all Anything makes new. great yeah. sense. And people should go and, and get the Under the Banner of Heaven soundtrack and watch the show. And the last solo record, which uh, I just want to say to people listening to this, it's strong. It is, uh, especially if. If if you can close your eyes and you know what like uh, Dinosaur Junior uh, is, you'll really oh, nice. Uh, nice. You know, there's like a lot of Sabato and Dinosaur Junior in that record. I think in cool. like that period of time. Uh, and um, yeah, it felt a lot like a, a lot of Sabato in that record. I felt like the approach in a way. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks, man. Thanks for doing this. Uh, thanks, Brian. And uh, I can't wait to see you guys in New York. Awesome. I'll see you. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. Uh, I got, just got to spend an hour talking to uh, Jeff from Pearl Jam. How fun. And the great composer, Jeff Amen. All right. See you later, Jeff. Take care of yourself. See you, man. <laughs>